Welcome to part two of this week's podcast. So I had taken a few notes this afternoon. There are three Psalms I had planned to talk about, but we've got a little long-winded here. I'm just going to describe them rather than read from them. Psalm 68, I have written, is a praise of a warrior God of Israel. And it really interested me at one point because this is one of the oldest pieces of poetry in the Bible, some scholars think. But what it is, it's looking at Yahweh or Jehovah. And you've got to imagine the earliest Israelites. They're escaping from Egypt, and it's the soldiers of Pharaoh, and then it's the Amalekites, and then it's the Jebusites, and their God led them to battle. So anyway, that's kind of a fun one. It's a psalm of David, again, written to the chief musician. It was incorporated in their liturgy, but describes this mighty God who defeats his enemies. He descended on Sinai. He battled for his people. But if there's a verse I'm going to read from this, this is Psalm 68 again. This mighty warrior God, there's some stuff about widows and things in here. He's a tender, loving God. Verse 5, a father of the fathers, a judge of widows. God is in his holy habitations. God setteth the solitary in families. Wow. So many of our sisters and brothers in the church who aren't in the kind of families they want or in the relationships they want or are single. Isn't that interesting? He setteth the solitary in families. The family of God. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell on the dry land. It's kind of like my thing about not diluting the doctrine or compromising our standards. The rebellious are going to be in that dry land. He's got the water. He's got the help. But if we don't come to him, it won't be there. Psalm 72 is another one I had made a note on. This was the only one of the royal or possibly messianic psalms that I found a clear example of in our reading for this week. As I said, there were quite a few that Brother Hopkins was treating. This is called a Psalm for Solomon. And so it is describing Solomon when he became king. Now, Solomon, of course, was the son of David, but Jesus is the ultimate son of David. So we can probably see here some allusions to Christ. He's to be a righteous king, and the king's son will deliver the poor and the needy. So just the first couple of verses. What verse is that? This is Psalm 72. So just starting verse 1. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. Now, so here it's God the Father. So we're asking God the Father to give the king, in our view, Christ, righteousness so that he can judge righteously as Solomon did. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment, verse 2. Verse 4, he shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. They that fear thee or they who stand in awe of thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. It's crafted or it's put in the setting of Solomon becoming king. And we remember some of those stories about Solomon praying for wisdom and not riches, but he got both. And he did judge wisely, but all of the kings who were supposed to be types and anticipations of Christ fall short. And so that's why I think this is one where we can see some messianic anticipation. Psalm 78, I never plan to read with you because it is so long. It is a historical psalm. <laughs> Just for those of you who want to review your Exodus and Numbers, <laughs> Psalm 78 goes through the entire history of the children of Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness. Oh, and it wow. focuses on their murmuring and the rebelliousness. I mentioned that I sometimes color-code my scriptures and all the bad things are always in dark gray or black. So it's kind of an object lesson <laughs> of the disobedience of Israel, pivotal points in their history. This is not one I turn to when I need an uplift. It's not one I, I turn to at night as I'm trying to save my evening prayers. But you know, you have to read the whole corpus. All 150 Psalms are in there for a reason. 
if I were to try to find an application for this, I think of Alma the Younger, is it Alma 5? When he's talking to people in Zarahemla, and he keeps saying, look at your fathers, remember the captivity of your fathers, how God delivered them. And so there's something for that. And even within our own lives, it doesn't need to be our own fathers and grandfathers we need to remember. The prototypes, if you will, of or object lessons of rebelliousness can be ourselves in our own lives. You know, look back at periods in our lives when we weren't as faithful and how will that encourage us to be better now? There's a lot of, they were not faithful. They were not there when they were stubborn. They were rebellious. They turned away from God. They believed not. They trusted not. And it's good to remember that it didn't turn out well for them, for that original generation. What a wonderful idea to put your journal to music and to take those lessons from history, put them to music where you won't forget them. Uh, kids, we seem to be forgetting some stuff here. We're going to sing Psalm 78. And you can remind that kind of, uh, let's try not to make those same mistakes again type of thing. Yeah. I've often wondered about that line, you know, the Lord, when we repent, he forgives us and he forgets and we don't forget. <laughs> We need to forgive ourselves. We don't always forget. That's because we need to learn from the mistakes we've made. Yeah. And have that memory, not always a happy one, serve as an encouragement not to turn back to that kind of behavior. But I have a few final psalms that I want to share with you that are, once again, a temple psalm, a pilgrimage psalm, and then a couple psalms of praise, some of which have been set to music, and they remind me of singing with my 360 closest friends back in Salt Lake. <laughs> Psalm 84, I was surprised, to be honest, that this wasn't listed as one of the possibilities in the Come Follow Me manual. They did 77 to 78 and then jumped to 85 and 86. Please don't forget Psalm 84, anybody. Yeah. This is a temple or pilgrimage song where the singer praises the house of the Lord. And I just want to share a few verses from this. The words are going to sound familiar, and some of you will know a slightly different version. That's because this is in Brahms's famous German Requiem, where it's not how amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts, it's how lovely is thy dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. So any singers out there, if you love that movement from Brahms, it's from this psalm. But we'll go ahead and read it as is in our King James Version. How amiable or lovable are thy tabernacles, thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living of God. And then it talks about how a sparrow finds a nest in the altar. Blessed are they, then moving to verse 4, are they that dwell in my house, they will be ever praising thee. Is how Brahms does it. They will still be praising thee. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and whose heart are thy ways. Uh, there's another verse in here. I remember years ago when I was first getting interested in antiquity, I was not succeeding as a chemistry pre-med major. And so I was thinking about changing to ancient studies. And I took a program prize from Hugh Nibley. And someone asked him, he said, Brother Nibley, why were you never a state president or a general authority? And he said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper of the house of the Lord than foremost in the tents of the wicked. I thought, what are you saying? All the years <laughs> later, did I realize he was quoting <laughs> Psalm 84. And I mentioned how much I used to love being an orange worker in the Provo Temple. And people say, what's your favorite thing to do in the temple? I can't even tell you which one. I love all of them. But believe it or not, one of my favorite posts was recommend desk. And brother don't do that much now because sisters get to do that a lot. I loved welcoming people to the temple. I loved smiling. I used to get after the old brethren I'd work with, say, stop looking so grumpy. Stop taking that recommend and looking at it like something wrong. We shouldn't be daunting figures at the doorway <laughs> of the house of God. It should be welcome to the temple. We're glad you're here, right? So anyway, this was my go-to verse. Every time I went up to my shift at the recommend desk, 
Verse 10, a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Because doorkeeper mm-hmm. sounds like a pretty minor duty. I remember one of my first times I worked in the temple, they put me in the laundry. I'm like, what? I fold in socks. Anything in the house of the Lord can be a joy if you allow yourself to feel the spirit to it. Eric, as you've been talking about missing the temple because you're there in, in Jerusalem, and correct me if I'm wrong, where's the nearest temple to you? Well, it will be Dubai, but right now it's Kiev, and that's not an option, so it's Rome. (laughs) And so here in Provo, you know how many temples you have, we have right around us. And I felt that, and I felt the idea of, I want to hear the music of the organ again in the temple. I I think COVID maybe took us, a lot of us, out of our routine of of going to the temple, right? Because you got to make an appointment, and so often there's no appointments to pick up, and See, and I was so spoiled because I was under 60 and I was vaccinated. I got called back to work in the temple months before most people were. Oh, wow. So I had a pass every week, yeah. Some of the most beautiful experiences I've had is when I officiated an endowment for five people. A missionary, his mom and dad, his sister, and her husband. Five people, just them. COVID blessing. Yeah, the one by oneness of the gospel. When we took our daughter Natalie to get her endowment before she went to her mission in Tucson and Tahiti, I think it was President Burton at at the temple. He looked at us and said, "We opened the temple for one person today. The lights, the the AC, everything for one your daughter today." That was a beautiful moment for all of us to get that sense of. The Lord cares for us one at a time. To those listening who are thinking you're kind of like me, like, yeah, I have gotten out of the the routine of getting into the temple. This is October 2021 General Conference, President Nelson. If you don't yet love to attend the temple, he says, go more often, not less. Let the Lord, through his spirit, teach and inspire you there. I promise you, here we have a prophet of God, I promise you that over time, the temple will become a place of safety, solace, and revelation. He said, to each of you who has made temple covenants, I plead with you to seek prayerfully and consistently to understand temple covenants and ordinances. Spiritual doors will open. You will learn how to part the veil between heaven and earth, how to ask for God's angels to attend you, and how to better receive direction from heaven. Your diligent efforts to do so will reinforce and strengthen your spiritual foundation. Wow, what promises. And the Psalms, Eric, the way you described the Psalms happening at the temple, here they are. All of a sudden, it made me thirst for the temple. Again, like you do, they're in in the Holy Land. My dad also passed away in 2004, and I'm using his Old Testament today, and it's so fun to see what he marked. He marked a lot of stuff, but every once in a while, he put a star. He has a star next to, I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tent of wickedness. (laughs) And then that next verse, he colored all in, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing, this is all colored in, will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. It's fun to benefit, kind of get an insight into my dad when I see what he marked. If we can do a little 
digression here for a moment. I told a story one year. It was right after my mom died. And I, my mom and I were really close and I suffered. Oh, I suffered. Six months later, my wife finally said, go see someone. You're not acting this very well. And I remember one morning, I was just so sad. And I got up and I pulled out my Book of Mormon. I pulled out a commentary and pulled out my colored pencils. And I just didn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I looked in my study. And in my study, I had this, <laughs> it was kind of gaudy, this bright yellow chair, overstuffed chair of my grandmother's that used to be in her study. So I went and I sat in Nana's chair. And then I looked and there were my mother's scriptures. When she was so sick at the end, you know, she went down to 98 pounds. I used to carry mom. I had my arms into dialysis three mornings a week. And I'd carry her in and they'd set her up on dialysis. And she had these green oversized scriptures. They were actually Nana's. They were my grandmother's first. You know, mom would read what she could. So sick. So anyway, I'm sitting in Nana's chair and I look over and I see mom's scriptures. Took them out and I opened them. And just like what you were saying, John, I saw some passages that she had marked. And suddenly I felt like Nana was hugging me and Mom was reaching out to me. And I kid you not, I heard Mama's voice. She said, Son, I love you too. You're going to be all right. And that was the turning point after six months of really serious depression. And it was because of that visual cue and the feeling of my grandmother's chair and the view of my mother's scriptures, because I could imagine what she was thinking when she was reading them and the few things she was strong enough to mark. Eric, that's absolutely beautiful, really. That is. And I I just amen to that. I've had so much fun looking at my dad's scriptures and seeing his notes in the margins because I, when I was first called to be a bishop... I went to the cemetery just to sit by my dad. But I'm finding so much in here that he seems to be saying to me by what he marked and post-its in the front covers with lists of different verses. And my dad was a convert and just devoured the scriptures and, and loved them so So your story means a lot to me because I will take pictures of verses now and text them to my siblings to say, look, look what dad marked and look what he said about this. And uh, that has been a totally unexpected dimension to scriptures to take my dad's scriptures and look at them. So I'm glad you said that, Eric. Well, I'm grateful to you. You've just helped me understand the line of my patriarchal blessing. I have a line in my patriarchal blessing which says I should be grateful for the inheritance which is mine in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've always interpreted that, the blessings I get if I keep my covenants. And you've just given me a key that lets me see another interpretation. My inheritance in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the faithfulness of my mother and my dad's faithfulness and my grandmother's love. It's because it's generations. It's generations. And for our listeners who don't have family in the church or ancestors in the church, guess what? Abraham and Sarah are your grandparents. And the prophets and the figures and the scriptures can be your sisters and your brothers and your parents. And you've helped me, John, understand a line that's meant something to me, but I've never seen it this way before. We can literally inherit the faith and the excitement and the love of those who've gone before, whether there are literal ancestors or there are scriptural ancestors. So thank you. You're hearing your mother's voice there. 
reminds me because I, I sent a text to my siblings about look at what dad said right here. It, because when I read it, I hear him talking. That's a lot of fun to think, hey, he's still involved. I'm I'm still a son. He's still my dad. And you're going to help me get through this through this life this time. So thank you for, for that. A lot of fun tag teaming because you just said, hear him, your dad. But what has President Nelson said? Hear yeah. him, the Lord. <laughs> right? I'm hearing my other father. <laughs> right, right. Now, some people say, are you a theologian? And I say, no, no, I'm an exegete. I study text. I'm a practitioner. <laughs> I'm not the one who sits around and theologizes. That's a verb. <laughs> I practice the gospel. I try to worship. And these are some lines I like to incorporate in my morning worship. This is from Psalms 95 and 6, 96. And I'm going to read several verses, but there, there are three verses that I actually use every morning before my morning prayers. But let me do the set it up. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord, of course, Lord in small caps is Yahweh, right? Jehovah. <laughs> For Jehovah is a great God and a great king of all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his and he made it and his hands formed the dry land. And these two verses are the ones that I frequently use in the morning. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Jehovah, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then flipping over to Psalm 96, verse 9. Oh, worship the Lord. Oh, worship Jehovah in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him, perhaps better rendered, stand in awe of him, all the earth. I love that line. It appears a few other times earlier in the collection of the Psalms. Worship in the beauty of holiness. And I'm still learning what that means. But whether it be singing with other people who share my faith or praying alone or in a group or standing in holy places or celebrating sacred time like Holy Week or Easter, or all of these things are beautiful. These times that we feel the Spirit, and as I said, back to my work and definition of worship, where we're being transformed, that's what the beauty of holiness is. He calls us to be holy. It's His holiness He imputes to us. But as it transforms us, that's beautiful. The final one, and this went slightly beyond what the assignment was for this week, but it wasn't in next week's assignment, and I just felt like it'd be a shame not to do this. My wife often says, this Church of Huntsman is so complicated, because before we have Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner, we've got to read some scriptures, we've got to sing a song, then of course there's Dad's Prayer that never ends. But my family hears this one a lot, because this is a true Thanksgiving Psalm 100, and a lot of my choir friends will remember this text, because we sing it in various settings, musical settings. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord and to Jehovah, all ye lands. Serve the Lord, serve Jehovah with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. And once again, wow, Jehovah is God. The word made flesh is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are the people, his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, and be thankful unto him, and bless his name. For the Lord, for Jehovah is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. And if I had my students here, I'd say, give me an amen. And I'd hope I'd get an amen. amen from you. <laughs> Hank, there's something that, I know you love the book of Jacob, right? 
Yeah. So in, in Psalm 95, I was like, man, I've heard that phrase before. Look at the end of verse seven. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. That is Jacob 6.6. 6. Oh, wow. The footnote folks didn't put it in there, but Jacob must have known the Psalms. Or Jacob and this psalmist knew the same source. I mean, we don't know. Yeah, exactly. Right. Then Jacob says, for why will you die? But here, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation, the, going back to an event in the Exodus. But anyway, I just thought, whoa, I've heard that phrase before. That our Book of Mormon authors were familiar with these words. Well, and you know, Jacob is the most poetic of the Book of Mormon authors. But when it talks about how Nephi says, you know, I haven't taught my children the ways of the Jews, but Nephi and Jacob were taught by Lehi. And Jacob is as poetic as they come. Eric, as you were reading some of these Psalms, it helped me better understand Nephi's world and why he would even break into a Psalm like he does, because this is part of his world. It also helps understand the Isaiah passages better. When you get a big stretch like 12 to 24 in 2 Nephi, you know, we always have a hard time dragging Sam through those. When you remember that they are also poetic, sometimes striving so hard to understand what's that representing, what's that prophesying about, and, and we don't just take it for the beauty it is, and that maybe for Nephi, part of it was just the beauty of Isaiah. See, we're not used to that. Sometimes I think we overdo. We're here to learn and grow, and we're going to learn something from this. I often tell students, inspiration is not just what the scriptures say, it's how they say it. Oh, Hugh Nibble used to always say, I, I learn something new at the temple every time I go. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I go all the time, and I'm not learning something every time I go. <laughs> but then I, get, I started to be generous with myself, and I said, but I feel something every time I go. And I got out of this mode that I always need to be learning something or getting something out of something in some kind of tangible or quantifiable way. It's okay to just read the scriptures and feel the spirit, even if you don't have a particular message from them. That's, and I think sometimes we almost set ourselves up for frustration. We become almost too utilitarian. This is what I'm talking about being a practitioner of the gospel. I think sometimes we almost become too utilitarian. What is it going to do for me? How is this going to better me? Well, maybe it's just going to transform you because it's going to help you feel God. Yeah. I mean, those people were uprooted from the land of their inheritance. And maybe for Nephi, it was, this reminds me of home. This reminds me of familiar places in my youth. And when we grew up and when we heard these words, and it was something to hang on to home with when he repeated Isaiah. I don't know. This is awesome. Eric, I want to ask you two questions because I think our listeners will be interested. So this first question, I think people are like, he's in the choir, what's that like? So just tell them what it's like a little bit practically, going to practice and getting there for conference. And There are the very practical parts. And I, my brother-in-law once, when I was telling him how often I practice, he goes, you meet that often? Because you know he only saw the choir at General Conference. He thought we got together a few weeks before General Conference and we sang conference. Didn't realize it was every Thursday from 7 to 9.30, and it was every Sunday morning starting at 7.30, earlier by the time we change, sometimes after broadcast till 12, Tuesday nights before conference and concerts and tapings. I mean, there's a lot of practice. And Dr. Wilberg always says, it's just like anything else in the gospel, Mac will say. He says, we have to do our part. If we prepare ourselves as well as we can, musically and spiritually, then God will make up the difference. And that's why the choirs sometimes can perform beyond 
expectation. You know, to have a group that large is not a choral director's dream. <laughs> Mac will often say the collective IQ of a group goes down the bigger it gets. It's, yeah. just, it's just hard to work with that many people, you know? I mean, what you really want is a nice chamber choir, 30 excellent singers that you can stand next together and fill each other. We perform beyond expectation of what we should because, the, and the orchestra, the same thing. Uh, let me just ask, shout out to my friends in the orchestra. The orchestra joined full-time the choir in 99, about the same time as Brother Wilbur came. Brett Barlow was there as well at that time. And it changed things. It really did. And we will do these things periodically with the Utah Symphony. And I love performing with them. We always have to stretch a little farther. We had a situation, though, where we did one number Saturday night with the Utah Symphony, and then we did it for the broadcast Sunday morning with our orchestra at Temple Square. And maybe our orchestra wasn't as good technically, but I watched, later I watched that broadcast, and I watched some of my friends, Meredith Campbell, the first violinist. I said to my wife, they play with the Spirit. We're urged to sing with the Spirit, and I see my friends in the orchestra playing on the strings or with the trumpets or the flutes or whatever instruments, and they're doing it with the same joy and spirit and conviction we are. So the technical part is lots of rehearsing, sometimes getting not yelled at, but rebuked by our conductors. People who come and watch those rehearsals on Thursday night, they're always shocked because Brother Wilbur and Brother Murphy have to work us. And as a choral singer, you don't take it personally. You're just trying to get a better product. But there is such a joy. There's such a joy in singing. When I sing in church, I'm way too loud. I admit it. <laughs> You've heard me sing in department meetings. I'm way too loud. I don't do that in the choir because you have to blend. There's something about sacrificing your ego and your individuality and being a small cog in a really big machine. And my favorite times in the choir is when I don't hear myself, but I hear not just my fellow baritones, but I hear the second tenors and the sopranos over there and the harmonies that all comes together. And that's why those passages I mentioned, like in the first Nephi, when Lehi sees the numerous concourses of angels, that's a little bit of what heaven's like. We're not all the same. I think Elder Holland used the imagery of the choir once and talked about the different voice parts. We're not all the same. We're not singing the same part, but we're still one. See, that's the amazing thing. And that's one of the joys I get. Another shout out, Craig Jessup, a former music director of the Tabernacle Choir, is a dear friend. Craig would often say the week before conference, we do Tuesday rehearsal, Thursday rehearsal, and conferences that week. And he'd say, here's your assignment. This is what you need to get ready for conference. He said, you need to fast one day this week. You need to go to the temple one day this week. You need to perform an anonymous act of service this week. And you need to right a wrong or heal a relationship. And he would say, actually, our greatest preparation is not musical, it's spiritual. Wow. I, I don't want to just trumpet this. We don't want to have an elite group. Uh, soon after I joined the choir, to be honest, I went down to Cedar City, where my family's from. I went to Nana's and the Cedar Second Ward. She always wanted me to sing with her choir. And we sang Battle Hymn of the Republic. It was july 4th weekend and i i told my wife afterwards i said we didn't sing it anything like the tabernacle choir sings it but i felt as much spirit and love with those people who are my parents friends and neighbors and cousins so this happens with choirs and orchestras of any size anywhere and it doesn't have to be musical either think of your best missionary companion when you work together as a team and you sacrificed your ego and you felt unified. Think of when your marriage is the way it should be, when your family is the way it should be, when a ward is the way it should be, when a department should be. I mean, we're not any better, any worse than other departments on, on campus. We all have different points of views and attitudes. And, and sometimes it feels like we're going like this. 
And I just want to be a choir. That's why sometimes I don't do very well in departments. I think it's because I want to be in a choir, not in department. I want to be somewhere where we just <laughs> harmonize and are unified automatically. But academia is not that for a reason. We are trying to explore different points of views and weigh different ideas and do critical judgment. Oh, I, I think choir is my life preserver in an academic life. Let's put it that way. Mm. Mm, that's beautiful. One of my favorite quotations for marriages, but it, it just applies, is harmony is being different together. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That's the idea is that all of us can unite. Dissonance is something else, but harmony is being different together, you know. And man, when you're sitting there listening to that choir, even just at home during general conference, it moves you. I have several Tabernacle Choir playlists, and I always have music, and not just choir music. I have all kinds of music playing here in my office. I've not been very successful at watching the broadcast on YouTube. I've watched a few, and it's just <laughs> separation anxiety. You know, I just it's yeah. so, there's something about seeing that performance and seeing my friends in that loft. Oh man! But you know, yeah. uh, there's a lot to that. We feel that way when we're homesick, and that's the way we feel about our heavenly home. We just don't know it because of the veil of forgetfulness. We don't know how much. I read that those Psalms 42 and 63 about yearning for God. We're yearning for our heavenly home as much as I'm yearning to be singing with my 360 best friends. To have that unity, that joy, to be with people you love. Missing our family at home, our daughter and son-in-law. We're just counting the days till they get here for Christmas. They're going to come over for Christmas. Oh, wow. But that's life. And I think we have these little experiences in life which teach us about our souls and, and what we don't know in a conscious level our spirits are feeling. Missing our heavenly parents, missing those who've gone before, those who haven't come yet. There is something inside each of us. Yeah, a longing for home. I grew up because my mom was in the choir listening to LPs, records, Somebody might know what that means. <laughs> Long um, plays opposed to it. <laughs> yeah, right. All my life, every Sunday morning was the choir and more. And so on my mission, some missionaries were just discovering the choir. For me, it just made me homesick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can hear your mom almost in it. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I've been on every CD since Consider the Lilies. So, I mean, I've been singing since 2003. So, you know, it's, I hardly listen to any of them that I am not on there somewhere. But anyway, oh, I I'll, I'll relabel mine. Eric Huntsman and the choir. I'll, I'll label those. <laughs> That's exactly what <laughs> Brother Wilberg doesn't want to be like. Yeah. <laughs> no voice sticks out. I've had once or twice where I was called out by Mac or Ryan. So, you know, I try to harmonize and be innocent, but sometimes I get excited. Shortly after I was called as bishop, and this was years before I was in the choir, the sweet lady came up to me afterwards. She said, Bishop, you sing too loud. And I was just broken. And so for the next two or three weeks, I hardly sang. I just mumbled. And Elaine came up to me. And she said, Eric, you look so miserable. That's how you worship. Just sing. Just do so it. when I'm in a choir, I blend as best I can. But when I sing in church, preparation meeting, department meeting, I'm just going to let it rip because that's how it's well, you it's how the excitement you heard me with the Psalms. It's worship. It's my way of being close to God. I love that, Eric. And we should do that more in this church. Sing, sing the way you want to sing. Don't worry about what people are thinking today. Go ahead and I love that. I think that's a great takeaway from the book of Psalms. Sing, worship the Lord. I love walking into a chapel that's the song of the saints. Let's hear it. 
Eric, this has been just a fantastic day going through the book of Psalms with you. I've really just enjoyed feeling these scriptures more than anything else. Mm -hmm. I think our listeners would be interested in your journey, both as a Bible scholar, a father, and a Latter-day Saint. That's a lot of intertwining pieces and and parts. What's that journey been like for you? I started out, I was raised to be a doctor, a lawyer. Those were pretty much, my dad grew up on a ranch, first person in his family ever, all generations to go to college. He just had these dreams for me. And calculus and I just did not agree. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did two semesters, chemistry 111, 112, and it was just all I could do to pull out Bs. But that's like, oh, Bs, not bad. I was studying 12 hours per class, you know, to get a B. And it was just clear it wasn't going to get better. And so I came back my sophomore year for a semester, and I knew I wasn't majoring in chemistry. I was trying to make the mission decision. I signed up for American Heritage Biology and Physical Science. I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to study. I'm just going to do all my GEs the most boring semester imaginable. So I looked in the honors catalog. I mentioned I took program prize from Hugh Nibley, who was emeritus faculty, because it was a big name. That sounded interesting. But Wilfred Griggs, I don't know if you knew Wilfred. He was in ancient scripture for a long time. He had been my honors history of civ teacher my freshman year. And the honors catalog had a seven-credit class. It was five credits of honors accelerated Greek, two credits of New Testament. Now, here's the dirty secret. I did not like BYU religion classes. I thought they were kind of cheesy. And I thought, well, this will get rid of a religion class. I like Dr. Griggs. And wow, who knows Greek? And so I went ahead and Seven did that. credit and class on Greek New Testament. Five te- credits Greek? of honors Greek, two credit New Testament. It was my 211 oh my class. Word. We learned enough Greek to work through the Gospel of John. In retrospect, not well. You know, John's what I specialize in now. But we could kind of translate it. And we had an oral final at the end. So he had us translate chapters 19 through 21 of John on our own, come to the final, <laughs> and he would just ask, you know, Sarah, translate chapter 19, verses 20 through 28. And you'd read it aloud in Greek and translate it. He could tell by your translation whether you knew the forms and functions of the verbs and were parsing correctly. He might ask some grammatical questions. So everyone, and I had done well in the class, I'll admit it, but he never called me, didn't call me, didn't call me. Everyone had gone, and we had like an hour left in the three-hour session. So he says, well, Eric, he said, why don't you translate John 21? I said, what verses? He said, John 21. So I translated that entire chapter and, you know, we were done. I thought, wow, okay. And he said, why don't you come with me to my office? And we walked to the old JSB and he said, I don't usually try to convince people to go into academia because becoming an academic is like taking a vow of poverty. And I know you want to be a professional. <laughs> I said, but he said, I remember you from the, the history of civ class. You're a good writer. You're a good researcher. You did well at Greek. I think you have what it takes. I'm like, by this time I had decided to go on a mission from the time I talked to my bishop, to the time I had my call was two weeks. That's wow. how fast I was walking home one day. My bishop had an office on campus. I stopped in. All my friends were gone. I'd heard about people putting their papers. I had no idea what that meant. I sat down with him. I said, what, what's up with these papers? He pulled out a set, and I didn't even know what he was doing. We filled them out together. He just asked me, well, where were you born? What's your birthday? We filled out the papers. He said, you know, I have a friend who's a doctor, and I have another friend who's a dentist. I can get you. This is Monday. He said, I can get you in on Thursday and Friday. He said, member of state presidency works at the church office building, so go see your state president on Sunday. His counsel will carry them up on Monday. I had my call the next Thursday. Oh, and my, my parents word. didn't even know I was thinking about a mission. So I call my folks. My dad gets on the line. I said, get mom on the line. I said, 
you're hereby called to serve a mission of the time. My mother begins to bawl because, of course, that was her dream for me to go on a mission, and I'd been rebellious. So all I was thinking about was going to Thailand at that point. And so Dr. Greg said, Wilford said, just see me when you come home. So I came home and double majored in Greek and Latin. Loved it. Loved the ancient world. Loved mythology. Loved Roman history. Loved everything. Forgot about John, believe it or not. And so I went to the University of Pennsylvania, got my PhD, Master's in Classics, PhD in Ancient History, and I came back and taught classics initially. So from 1994 to 2003, I was in the College of Humanities. I wasn't in religion. And I loved it. But there was something still calling me. And I just, Tom Wayman and Richard Holtz have asked me to write a chapter in a book they were doing on the Savior's final 24 hours. And I wrote this chapter on the Roman trial of Jesus. And I read all 1,608 pages of Raymond Brown's Death of Messiah, and I read all this stuff. The night before it was due, I had a writer's block. I thought, what am I going to do? I just started flipping through the Book of Mormon to give myself a break. And I kept finding all these passages of Nephi and Jacob about, so they curse him, and they spit upon him, and they scourge him. I realized I could combine the gospel with Roman history and Greek language and scholarship. So I went and talked to Andy Skinner and applied for a job in ancient scriptures. So in 2003, I changed. Never taught seminary, never taught institute, had no idea how to be a religion professor. I was ready for New Testament, but Dan Judd was the department chair at the time. He gave me two sections of 211 and three of 121. He said, everyone cuts their teeth on Book of Mormon in this department. I had no idea how to teach the Book of Mormon. I had studied all this stuff on biblical exegesis. Then I did this ho-hum Book of Mormon class. I was putting my syllabus together, and I could not sleep. And the Spirit said, why is the Book of Mormon not as important to you as the Bible? I thought, Mm. I should be treating the Book of Mormon as seriously as I am the New Testament. And so that's when I started to craft my particular approach to exegesis and exposition studying it as a text, but applying it, bringing the spirit, trying to balance. Sometimes there are these arguments about devotional writing or academic writing. I'm not an either or kind of guy. I'm a both and. I don't know why you can't do both. Yeah, Dr. Huntsman, you used a term, uh, exegesis. And and I remember hearing that for the very first time and hearing the name Jesus in it, but it's not. It's with a G. Can you explain what exegesis and eisegesis are? That's one of those million-dollar words we Bible studies geeks use, so that's great. Let's explain it. Exegesis comes from a Greek word meaning to lead out the meaning of the text. And so it's the kind of systematic analysis of a text. We ask historical, literary, and theological questions to try to recreate as best we can what the original meaning of the text would be to its original audience. So it's letting the text speak for itself. Now, the opposite of it sometimes is described as eisegesis. In Greek, we would say eisegesis. Exegesis is leading the meaning out. Eisegesis is putting the meaning in. In Department meanings, you know me as one on slightly the academic side. It's probably how you know me. But you got to see my heart today, right? I, I, I really feel both. And so for me... It's great to be able to bring my love of history and language, not just Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, but English, King James, New Revised Standard, I don't care what the language is, because the Word of God is in any of those languages. But I mentioned this before, the inspiration is not just in what is said, but how it's said. You know, so all those years being a classicist and teaching literature, that's why I'm drawn to the Psalms. I can appreciate Scripture as literature as well as Scripture, if that makes any sense. And so in my teaching, I just try to do both. And I drag the students to the more academic part, I think, by sheer force of personality. Because <laughs> I'm excited about it, and this is neat, yeah. and look at it. But I've also found if the students have confidence that they know I'm a believer, 
and they know I have faith and that they feel the spirit, even when I'm talking about exegesis, they'll give that part of it a chance. My feeling is why not do everything with the scriptures you can? Everything you can. I know you need to make choices in a given class and in, in the time you have. But let me move from that question to the other question you want me to address. So here I am, a quote-unquote scholar of the scriptures, professor, teaching. I have this daughter who's just brilliant. My daughter, Rachel, is an ancient Near Eastern studies major. She focused on New Testament Greek, minored in Hebrew. She was just a little me. From the earliest age. Just like her dad. And then six years later, we have a son, cute, smiled, wonderful, didn't talk a lot. But then when he was three and a half, he stopped talking, stopped smiling, wouldn't let us hold him. And he was diagnosed with autism. And it completely changed our world. Because guess what? I'm not going to do exegesis with Sam. We couldn't even do our Christmas traditions the way we love to do them because the sounds, and, and they were just, our whole world changed. There are so many blessings I've had because of Sam. One is it's brought me back to the basics because I teach Sam the basics. We kept up with seminary. He couldn't do early, he couldn't do release time seminary. So I did home study with him. And we did the Book of Mormon pretty much on schedule. And we got through the Doctrine and Covenants pretty much on schedule. It took us three years to do the Old Testament. And by this point, I didn't care. I wasn't worried about seminary graduation. And we finished the Old Testament during COVID. Okay, And now we're doing the New Testament three or four days a week. Half a chapter, the Gospels a week. A day, lesson, whenever we meet. But guess what? I'm doing it with him in the Holy Land. And where I'm taking him to the places where those things happen. But Sam gave me, A, the gift of teaching the gospel and the scriptures simply. Simply. And boy, that little guy, he's a big guy now, he's six foot three, my gentle giant. He is a sweet spirit. I ordained him an elder the week before we came here. And his first blessing is when he gave me a blessing two days before we came here. Blesses the sacrament every week here at the Jerusalem Center. He's a service volunteer. He does the linen exchanges, and he helps the humanitarian service projects. Uh, having him here is a blessing because it's keeping me rooted in the simple. Sam has autism because of a genetic throw of the dice. We didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. It just happened. But he's probably not going to marry and have children. I remember shortly after his diagnosis, I was working my Thursday temple shift. I was in Dalman Court at the time, so I would... We called it loading rooms. We'd get a session started in that room. Then we'd have a few minutes. We'd go get another company to go in another room. And in between, I just was crying. And I said, Heavenly Father, I said, all these righteous desires I have for my son to serve a mission, full-time proselytizing mission, and marrying the temple, be a father, they're not going to happen. Why is this happening to my son? And kicker, I said, He's my only son. Now, this was the Thursday before Easter. The next day was Good Friday. An audible voice came to me, John and Hank. said, what about my only son? I learned something as I reflected on it. I later wrote about this in one of my books. I said, we spend so much time saying we want to be more like Jesus. But then when the Lord allows us to have the hardships <laughs> and the challenges I notice I didn't say he gave them to us. Some he may give, but sometimes he just allows them. There is this woman I used to love on the Evangelize the World Network. It's the Catholic Network. Her name was Mother Angelica. And she would describe it as God's determining will and God's permissive will. Sometimes he just permits things to happen. He permitted Sam to have autism. 
We pray that we will be more like Jesus, but then when the hardships and the sorrows come, we're like, no, not me, Lord, take it back. So Sam taught me a lot about accepting the will of the Lord, and it also broke my heart open for people whose lives would not be typical. He wasn't going to have a typical life. He might not have typical relationships, but I knew how much God loved him, and I knew how much I loved him. I had an experience in the choir. We were singing a tour in California. I talk about this in my devotional. And the day of a concert in the afternoon rehearsal, we'll have what we call a sound check at the venue. And we'll often bring local groups in to sing with us for the sound check. It's their chance to sing, right, with, with members of the Tabernacle Choir. We were in San Francisco, and we had the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus come for our sound check. And to their credit, my friends in the choir were warm and loving, sit by us, we're so glad to have you, no judgment, treating them well. And I have a very good friend, and I've told his story. He's given me permission to tell his story. I saw him when we were eating dinner in between the sound check and the performance, and he just looked so sad. And I went and put my arm around him and I said, Alex, I said, what do you think about today? He said, I think it was great that you all were so nice to the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. But here I am, a covenant-keeping homosexual man in the church, and I'm still under a rock. How are people treating me? What started with my son's autism and then having some different insights, having conversations with people from different racial communities, and then seeing the heartache of some of our our LGBTQ plus friends, it just made me look at it differently. And I'll actually come back to my precocious daughter. I tell the story in the devotional about reading 1 Corinthians with my daughter. I used to take her to the bus stop in my Jeep and we'd read our scriptures in the morning while we waited for the bus to come. And we were reading one of those hard passages in Paul. And my little girl, my princess, my precocious, wonderful little me looked at me, (laughs) 14 years old. She goes, Daddy, why doesn't Heavenly Father like girls as much as boys? So I, uh, you know, any way I can, without compromising our standards or diluting our doctrine, if I have a chance to speak up for those who are marginalized in any way, it's because of what Sammy taught me. Because his life isn't what I thought it could or should have been. But we're actually coming to realize it's exactly what Heavenly Father wanted it to be. You should see how he's blessing the lives of the students here right now. We have 84 New brothers and sisters for Sam. He's had better social experiences and interactions in the last two months than he's had his entire life. But how much are they learning from him? We had a minor COVID outbreak in the center, and Sam and Lynn got it. The first day he came up to the Oasis cafeteria after he got out of isolation, he was still wearing his mask. The students gave him an ovation. Sam, you're back. Teaching them how to love and care for someone. I don't even know how we got here, Frank, except you led me down the trail, the path of tears here. <laughs> but that's, I, I guess I'm a tender-hearted guy. I mean, I can be pretty hardcore academic, but I, I really do love the Lord. I do love people. Sure love my Sam. It's given me a feeling for how much God loves the world, how much he loved his son, Jesus Christ, but how much he loved you and how much he loved me. That's not academics talking. That's what I talk about being a practitioner of the gospel. That's what life and experience and the Spirit teaches us. And that's why I'm still in. I'm in because of what I know, but also because of what I felt and what I've experienced. So good. 
So good, Eric. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Wow. Eric, thank you for being here today. Dr. Eric Huntsman, what a great day. We, we've we talked about things that we haven't been able to talk about on the podcast before, and I think that that is crucial to a lot of our listeners. John, what a good day. Yeah, I love this idea of these are a response. It's such a nice way to look at at what what you called it, the writings. We've got the law, the prophets, the writings, and this is us responding to the Lord and to worship. And the list that you gave us was really valuable. Thank you. Yeah. Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times. Beautiful. We want to thank Dr. Eric Huntsman for being with us today. Uh, What a blessing, and I'm sure we'll be seeing him again, especially when we study the New Testament next year. We want to thank our executive producers, Steve and Shannon Sorensen, and our sponsors, David and Verla Sorensen, and we hope all of you will join us next week. We're coming back with another lesson on Psalms from Follow Him. We have an amazing production crew we want you to know about David Perry, Lisa Spice, Jamie Nielsen, Will Stoughton, Crystal Roberts, and Biel Cuadra. Thank you to our amazing production team.